At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com this podcast is brought to you by Tethered. As all of you know, I am all in on saddle hunting, and I basically trust my hunting to all of Tethered's gear, whether it's the Mantis Saddle Predator platform, his strap, whatever the case might be. The cool thing is is that what I love most, and one of the things I love most about Tethered is that they're just constantly evolving and upping their game and listening to saddle hunters and hunters in general about what their needs are in the field and continuing to adapt their equipment and put out new stuff, and that is not changing this year. They have a big announcement to make here on the 9th of January um, with some new gear coming out. So you're going to want to stay tuned. Be sure to visit the tetherednation.com website to get all of your updates. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm actually having a little bit of Skull Brew Coffee this morning while I record this. Uh, If you're not aware of what Skull Brew Coffee Company is, it's a business that my wife and I started. Uh, In order to give back more to conservation, we roast premium coffee and it ships out within hours of roasting, guaranteeing that you will get the freshest coffee available. The kicker is that we donate 10% of our proceeds back to conservation. You choose where the donation goes at checkout. Check us out at SkullBrewCoffee.com and let's do some good together and help protect wild places one cup at a time. Visit SkullBrewCoffee.com and pledge your support of conservation today. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 159. Today we're diving into part two of the listener Q&A, and I'm answering your questions with a little help from my buddy, Chad Sylvester. So stay tuned. What's going on out there, folks? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're feeling fine. We are pushing through yet another week. We're back. We're back in the saddle, so to speak. Took a, a little time off. I know I missed the, uh, in, in, uh, purposefully so, I missed putting out an episode on January 1st. Decided to take just a little bit of time over the holiday um, and, and, skip that, uh, and skip that episode as I was trying to do just a little rest and relaxation, spend some time with the family. And uh, get away from the podcast a little bit, um, which you need every now and then to clear your clear your brain, start thinking about what 2020 might have and what we want to do, what some focus areas might be. John and I, of course, uh, you know, we'll divulge what our plans are for the off season and stuff like that. And then, more specifically, I'm you know, I'm I'm making I'm in the midst of still kind of making my list of things to do. Um, I don't refer to them as New Year's uh, New Year's resolutions. Um, cause you know, those I think are meant to be broken. I look at them as making a list of shit I'm going to do. Um, and so there's a few things I've already kind of thought about based on some of the hunts that I had this year of some things that I want to change, adapt, 
um, add to my bag of tricks. And uh, some of those things I think I'll try to make probably a, a focus of content for the podcast. Um, and we'll see how those play out. I've already kind of started putting some of those things in motion, um, lining up a few guests that I think you guys will dig with some cool topics. So that's kind of what's going to be in store um, for the for the new year. Um, I have had a chance to get out and do a little bit of hunting since the last time I spoke to all you guys. Um, you know, it was back home over Christmas, did a couple late season hunts back home, or actually did one back home. Um, did one around here, and I don't remember if I even mentioned that one, but it was on a new piece of public um, that I went out, scouted, um, and, uh, and and checked out, just spent some time doing that, um, and, and found some good stuff I think that isn't necessarily good for late season, but will be good uh, for next fall. Um, so just kind of earmarking those you know, areas and already kind of putting into motion some plans um, and, and beginning to prepare for next fall. Um, did do a hunt on the one piece of the swamp. Um, didn't see any deer actually picked up my first shed of the year. Um, so, which is kind of made me a little apprehensive to be hitting the timber, uh, looking to fill my buck tag just because, um, it's, it's a little odd, but they're dropping a little bit early around here. And so I'm a little, a little apprehensive that I don't want to shoot a deer mistakenly thinking it's a doe when it's actually, actually a buck. Um, and so what I've, I'm staying true to what I had mentioned, you know, earlier in the year, whenever it came to late season, where I was like, you know, I don't have really any great late season setups around this area. I do at home, uh, cause we have some family property and stuff like that, that have some food sources on them. So I could hunt those. And I did hunt my dad's property while I was back for Christmas. Um, I pulled a camera card while I was there and was pleasantly surprised by some of the deer that had showed up, um, over the course of rut. Now the bummer is, as I'd mentioned previously, I'm always gone during rut, um, I'm always, you know, on a trip somewhere and this year will be no different. Um, however, this year I might be going just a little bit later. A lot of times I'm usually gone right around that Halloween and like the first and second ish week of November. Um, this year I'm thinking of maybe not starting that rut trip, um, until maybe the second week based on cameras from previous years and experience on this particular piece from previous year. Feel like, uh, I feel like I've maybe been there a, a week too early in some cases, um, so might push it back and go like the, the second week of November, we'll, we'll, you know, finish flushing out those plans, which would be kind of cool because then I'd actually be able to spend like some time that first week of November in Pennsylvania, which I've not really got the hunt for several years. Um, because I'm always, you know, out of state on a, on a trip during that time frame. So, so that was kind of promising when I pulled those cards because there was a lot of decent bucks that was at, were at my dad's place during that week. Um, and the other bit of good news off that card pool was the one shooter that I had pictures of, um, which looked to be the best deer that I had on camera on that property um, this year. Um, I had a camera that I pulled, the, I think I mentioned this, it was the first, uh, it was the opening weekend or opening Saturday of gun season. I went out and hunted that property, as I'd mentioned, with my bow. And there was a camera close by and I pulled it and there was a really good deer on that camera. And he had passed through like the first, I think, of, of November, I think is what the date was, or it might have been the third. It was between the first and the third. And so... You know, my curiosity was, you know, what I was wanting to know is like, did he just show up randomly like the first week of, you know, November or, you know, right around Halloween and then he's there for like a couple, you know, like two weeks and then he's gone or whatever the case is. And so when I pulled some of the other cards over, over Christmas, um, what I realized was, is he actually was really showing up consistently um, on one particular camera um, during daylight around like the 18th, 15th, 18th of, of October. Um, and was pretty consistent with showing up, you know, every, every few days on this particular camera and was really active during daylight hours, uh, in, in mid October, he actually started being 
his activity actually went more nocturnal or at night um, as it pushed closer to as it pushed closer to November. So that's kind of cool. So that's something I'm just kind of throwing in my bag of tricks. And then as I watched the cameras, like he was still around after, um, I think he had a couple more days left of gun season whenever I saw like the last picture of him, um, that I, that I pulled. And so he stayed on the property all through rut. It seems like he's there all through the most of most of late season. Um, but as it happens on this property, there's a lot of pressure in the area. And so, um, the deer, the deer get pretty scarce, um, after, after gun season. So, uh, the cameras are still out there. I changed, just changed cards and stuff. And so we'll monitor that and see if, if he happens to show back, uh, show back up. So that was, that was good. And then this past weekend I did, uh, a hunt slash scout on a piece of property that I, where I had that encounter with that really good deer over some primary scrapes. Um, I think I'd mentioned there was a crick bottom that was back in there and I wasn't really sure what it was cause I'd never been back in there. So I hiked, um, this past weekend back in there. I was really just looking for any type of late season sign to maybe set up on. So I was looking for, you know, some type of oak tree that might have some acorns that are still viable in that area. There are some, you know, food plots on this particular piece of property or they're not food plots, but they're, you know, well, I guess they are technically food plots that the um, game commission had put in. Um, and so as you might imagine, you know, late season, that's where a lot of guys are set up. And even during, you know, October, a lot of guys are setting up around that food source. Um, and I'm sure it got hammered during gun season as well. And so I just te- I just typically scratch that entire area off from the possibility of me hunting there just because I don't think that, you know, I'm going to see the caliber of deer that I want to see there and may not see deer at all, especially this time of year, um, based on the pressure that that property, I'm assuming, has, ha- has had, again, based on what I had seen yesterday because I saw plenty of hunters uh, yesterday. Um, so I ended up hiking to the back piece or back section of this piece where it gets, it's really like there's a creek bottom at some point, but really what it turns into is just like a nasty swamp. Um, which, you know, I found, uh, to be a little bit reassuring because I don't imagine there's going to be a ton of people back there. Didn't really see much sign. It's really, really thick right now. And we are in January. So, you know, as you get into, you know, as you look at September, late September for me, at least, you know, mid September, you know, through October, like that's going to be super, super gnarly thick back there and going to be hard to get into. So I really got to make a plan this year to try to hunt it. Found a little bit of buck sign back there, some decent rubs. So that was reassuring, but there's a couple dynamite pinch points where there's, you know, some topography and land features that kind of create very definitive places where deer are going to have to travel to kind of make their way through this like uh, swampy, nasty marshy mess to get to the other side of it and there's a trail that kind of runs right through that you can definitively see so that's that's precisely where they're going and for october there are two huge oak trees at that pinch point that are dropping acorns like crazy um and there were plenty of acorns that were still on the ground but it's so wet back there this time of year they're all rotted so they weren't worth anything for late season but when i looked at that i was like man this would be a dynamite spot for, you know, mid-ish October. Cause I guarantee you there's bucks that are probably bedded back in that general area. There's a ton of like really tall, like swamp, um, you know, uh, cattails and, and, and reeds that are kind of in that swampy area. Um, and it was pretty wet yesterday, but we had a good solid two days of rain. So I'm imagining like if you get some decent dry weather for a spell in September, October, that'll probably be dry enough to where I'd imagine you, you definitely would probably find some deer bedding in that. Um, and so I just really was, I was really pretty stoked about what I had found because, you know, I, I feel like the deer that I had seen was bedded back in that area. And I found some really good spots where I think that I could probably capitalize on a, on an earlier season type hunt. So, so that was reassuring. And then the other thing that I did, I just want to make mention of before we jump into this podcast 
uh, with with my buddy Chad is uh, I get a lot of questions um, about my saddle equipment, you know, what the gear that I'm using and so forth. And so I know I've tried to explain it a couple of different times on the podcast here, um, what I'm using, how I'm using it, uh, et cetera. And so I thought what might be helpful, and since I get a, a fair amount of questions about it, was if I would just make a video, a YouTube video, and put it up on the Truth From The Stand YouTube channel um, to kind of outline what it is I use. So that's exactly what I did. I did a video that basically outlines all my essential saddle equipment. So it's everything from, you know, of course, the, the Tethered Man saddle that I'm using, the Predator platform, um, my sticks, my short sticks that I'm using, the Climbinator that I'm using, you know, how I, what I'm actually keeping in my pouches and, and so forth and how I have things kind of situated, you know, how I'm getting my, my, my platform in and out of the woods, how I'm getting it out of the tree and when I'm descending. So I kind of go through, you know, some of the small mods that I've done to my saddle as well to kind of fit what I need it to do. Um, and I created a video, it's about nine minutes long and it kind of outlines all that information. It's, it's basically the no bullshit version of like my saddle gear. So it's not, I'm not going into like, you know, how I'm, pack in my pack and what other gear that I'm taking. It's only the essentials that I would take in if I were going to go do a hunt tomorrow or if I were going to leave right now to go hunt, what would the items be that I'm taking? That is what the video that that is what the video is about. Because I'm always kind of striving to try to lighten my load and debulk and take fewer and fewer things. And so it's it's continually, you know, kind of an evolution uh to make that happen. And I have one more kind of update I'm probably going to do um, for some earlier season hunting and using just the predator pack for that. Um, I'll use that in early season cause it's a little bit lighter. Um, and I'm not usually taking, I'm, I'm not taking layers or insulation layers and stuff in so I can get away with using it. But you know, if I do want to film and take some camera gear, it, it becomes a little bit of a challenge with that. And so oftentimes if I'm taking that as my pack, I'm usually not taking my camera equipment with me. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm getting some Molly attachments and stuff that I can use on that predator pack. Um, and I'll do a video of that once I get all that stuff in and kind of situate the pack, but I'm, I'm modifying that to be able to be kind of like my all in one pack that really it will work for everything except maybe late season. Um, you know, cause I've basically figured out a, a layering system that I've used this year, um, with my, uh, with my gear that's allowed me to kind of really, um, debulk and, uh, reduce the number of layers and clothes that I'm having to take and pack with me. So, and I'll eventually do when I get some time, I'll do a video on that as well. So go ahead over to the YouTube channel, the truth from stand YouTube channel and check that out. And while you're there, give it a, a subscription. So you get all the videos when they come out. But with that, we will go ahead and jump into today's podcast, which is with my good buddy, Chad Sylvester of Exodus Outdoor Gear. You know him, you love him. We did part one together, answering your listener uh, listener questions. And uh, it was a long session that he and I had, so I broke it, into two, I broke it into two episodes. And we do a lot of the stuff that we cover you know, in this one. I think the last one we covered a little bit of hunting from the ground and so forth. This one, I think we kick it off with talking about aggressive hunting, you know, Chad and I are both friends with Cody DeQuisto, and we've done some lengthy conversations both collectively together and separately with him about that hunting aggressive style. And so we so we cover that. We talk a little late season, late season food sources. Uh, we cover a little bit of how to hunt out of state and plan DIY hunts. Um, I know that that's a topic I get a, a fair amount of questions about. Um, and then we a little bit of trail camera uh, information as well, which is great to have Chad on because no one better suited to answer those questions than Chad, the guy who owns a trail camera company. And uh, we talk a little bit about um, just physical fitness and as it's related to hunting. So um, 
as always, I hope you guys are having a great new year. I hope your new year's off to a great start. I really appreciate you guys, you know, all your, the support you've given over the past four years, looking to make 2020 a killer year, and uh, just appreciate all you guys listening. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get rocking and rolling with this next podcast. So next question is, uh, oh, this is a good one, man, because I think you and I talk about this a good bit, especially when we've talked to Cody in the past and stuff, but... How do you get past that quote unquote too aggressive spooking deer kind of you know style of hunting to being to you know to moving past that to being in the game and not constantly running deer off? I think is what this person is kind of saying. So I think the question really is is like how do I hunt aggressive without screwing myself? If I were to paraphrase it, so if do you want to take this first stab at it, or do you want me to take a crack at it? No, I'll I'll go ahead and. Okay. Uh, and take it first. Um, if it's, if it's someone, I'm, I'm looking at this as like this person, it's being that, uh, you know, hunting, bedding, bee style, being aggressive. This is something new. I would assume that's, that's why they're answering, um, new to them. That's why they're asking this question. And I really think you just have to be, you have to bump deer and you have to screw up and say, damn, that was too close. Yeah. Like I, I, I personally think that is the only way, and you can take like the rule of thumbs, like you got to be within a hundred yards. Yes, you could do that. But unless you know exactly where that deer, where that bed is, or that bedding area is, um, you're not going to know exactly where a hundred yards, hundred yards, you know, proximity is. And it's, it's different with the type of terrain that you're hunting. If you're in, you know, if you're hunting a swamp and there's an island, well, yes, you know that, you know, if you've done your, your, your homework, you know that those deer are probably bedded on that island or on that on that high point. If you're in ag ground, it might not be as easy. If you're in hill country, it might not be as easy. So, I think you just really gotta be you know not be afraid to to screw up and and bump deer. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're hunting really big chunks of ground where yeah. if you bump that deer, you know it's not going to end up you know on your neighbor's property where your neighbor's going to kill him. Um, you know, if it's micro, micro chunks of ground, you know, 50 acres, 100 acres, um, or smaller, like that is a worry. So mm-hmm. I think, I, I think that you're better off being too aggressive and bumping the deer and knowing that you bumped him versus being too far back, not seeing him and then wondering, okay, well, I didn't see him. Did I bump him? Was I not close enough? And you have all these thoughts running through your mind. And at the same point, like if that's on the line of travel, that deer's no, it's going to know that you were there. Right. It's, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're just too far out and you're catching him a half hour after, after daylight or after shooting hours, like the deer is going to know that's being hunted. So mm-hmm. either I, like, that's just my train of thought is be aggressive. Don't be afraid to bump him and bump a couple of deer to know like what you can actually get away with. Like you personally, because you might, you know, I might hunt a little bit different. I might be louder, so I have to stay a little further back. You, you know, the way you sit up, you might be a little quieter. You might be able to cut that distance a little more, or or vice versa. So, right, that's that's my that's my advice. Just just go. Don't be afraid to bump those deer. Um, you know, Cody and Andre, you know, they'll talk about those bumping bumping dump tactics where they'll bump a deer out of its bed, and they'll hang a stand like they'll yeah. get downwind where they think that that buck is actually going to circle downwind of its bed and sent check that to see what exactly bumped him so just you know take a step back 
figure out, you know, where that deer or how that deer is going to approach that bed downwind to scent check it. And, you know, there's an opportunity to kill them there too, even after you bump them. So, um, I don't necessarily think that if you bump a deer, the game's over. Yeah. Um, now if you do that day after day after day, like, yeah, the deer is not going to tolerate it. It's not going to put up with it. It's going to, you know, it's probably going to relocate. Right. But I don't think, you know, it's the end of the world if you do bump, bump one. I think that we oftentimes give um, deer not enough credit for having as much nerve as they do. Because I think we I think we feel like they're more sensitive than they are. Now, I'm not saying, to your point, you don't want to go bumping them day after day. But I think a little bit of pressure on them, especially, you know, I think you have to look at what state you're in, too. Like, and where you're hunting. And you have to. Th- I think you have to take all the things into kind of consideration to understand what you're going to get away with. I think it also is, is it a, is it a place that you live? You know what I mean? And that you're going to be able to hunt over and over again or a, a parcel you're going to hunt over and over again. Or you want to know like an out-of-state DIY hunt where you've got seven to ten days to get it done. You know what I mean? Because I think both of those things would play into like how I might how I might approach it. I think for me, and I've, I've chronicled this in previous podcasts, but, you know, this was a kind of a watershed. And I know, Chad, you and I even talked offline like personally, like on the phone about this. It was like for me this year was really a watershed moment for me in, in aggressive hunting because I've always kind of been – I had a little bit of trepidation about how aggressive I wanted to be and stuff like that. And and then, you know, cause usually whenever I've done like maybe some out of state hunts and stuff like that, it's like, I've had maybe a buddy, you know, when, like when I hunt with you who has like a sense of like what's going on on the piece, you know what I mean? And so it kind of helped give some direction of where I might want to start, you know, where I might want to look and, and stuff like that. And so in those instances, I'm probably a little more cautious. I won't say cautious, but you know, I'm, I'm less aggressive because you know, I have a, I'm walking in with a little bit more Intel. I feel like I have a little bit more information. This last trip to Iowa, you know, I went out in March and scouted with John, but the part, the parcel that I ended up hunting the most often, like he and I never walked on. And so the only way I was going to learn it and figure it out was, is I had to put miles under my feet and I had to move deer because I had to just figure out where they were spending time. And Mm -hmm. to me, you know, that worked on that piece because I was hunting a public piece that was several thousand acres in size, you know, like something like 7,000 acres or whatever. And so I wasn't worried about bumping deer because like once I know I found in general where they're at, I know I'll go find, I'll find more. Like I wasn't worried about that. You know, I think to your point, it's like if you're hunting your back 40, I'm hunting like I, I, I think that when you say hunt aggressive and you're talking about your back 40 or your 100 or 200 acres i mean anything really under 500 like i wouldn't hunt you know ultra aggressive really in my my opinion because that's still not a lot of room in terms of a whitetail but if i'm hunting a family piece it's like i will hunt aggressive in the sense of when i have the information i need i will then get as close as i can to try to make to to try to make the kill right but what i'm not going to do on those pieces is i'm probably not going to like take you know, walks through during the season more than maybe once and maybe move a deer and go, okay, I confirmed where his bed was at, where I thought it was at, or I confirmed in the general area where he's bedding. I found a bunch of sign in a primary. And this is where you kind of get back to finding that, that sign, because, you know, you find that primary scrape area with like a rub in it or whatever the case is. It's like, that's a good, that like, that's an aggressive move because you're getting up in his business. It might not be his bed, but that is like a spot that he's really comfortable in, which is why he's laid down all that sign. You know, so you could aggressively hunt that. So I think that there's different ways to kind of go about it. Uh, and I think that that's what I've learned over the past two years of trying to adopt this approach more and more is that you got to be unafraid to make mistakes. You got to be willing to fail. Otherwise, you're never going to you're never going to get there. And actually, Dan Infault and I talked about about this. He was like, 
you know, you got to get past the learning curve part of it because once you do, it's like a light bulb goes off. And then you start having confidence yeah. in what you're seeing. And then you start to just get a feel for how close you are. Because Dan even says, it's like, there's, there's times when he gets too close and still and blows one out. And he's been doing it for how long? You know what I mean? So it's right. not like guys don't do it. It's just the guys that have been doing it a long time aren't so concerned when those types of things happen. They'll either go refine the deer or they know that the spot that they found them in is their prime spot and like come hell or high water, short of being like jumped on by a human, they're coming back. You know what I mean? At, at some right. point, maybe not the next day, it might take a week or whatever, but they're going to come back. And that was, last point on this was that where I actually killed my deer in Iowa, it was the next to last day and I said, I got to go just move deer because I got to try to find where that buck that I'd missed was bedded. Like I was, you know, or where he was spending his time. And so I just started hiking and I followed his rub line and I found one of his beds and then I found one of his scrapes back in the timber and then I found another bed and I just kind of kept following it. And I got to the place where I looked at the map where I thought this is really where I want to be and I'm going to hike my way to it. And then I kicked the deer out of a bed at that spot. It was a buck. I don't know if it was the one that I'd missed or not. And it may have been the one that I killed the following day, but I got in there after I kicked him out and I was like, this is exactly where I need to be. I hung us, uh, I hung my actual, all my saddle gear in the tree and left it there overnight. And it was about 35, 40 yards from his bed. And I had really slick access to get in the next day. I went in midday, you know, went in around like 11 o'clock. Cause I didn't want to catch anything, you know, on their way back to bed or anything like that in that area. So I waited till everything was back to bed and walked my way in and set up. And then he came through at three 30, you know? And so that was one of those things where, like, that very well may have been the deer that I kicked out of that bed the day before, you know. But to his mind, it worked for him. He got away, right. you know. And right. So, well, that's go ahead. That's to the to that exact point. Like, the industry has made it TV shows, whatever, has made it sacrilege to, to bump a deer, pressure a deer out of its bed. But like the point that you just made about that deer getting up and escaping, like that is the whole reason he's bedded there. Yep. Like that almost. When you bump a deer out of its bed and it gets away like that, it reinforces that that is a safe place. Like he escaped predation because that bed was bulletproof, and it reinforces that he will be safe there in the future as long as it's not happening every day. Like he's willing to put up with that little bit of stress. But like when you make that mistake and bump him, you need to ask yourself to you know to learn from it. exactly what you said. Like you know even Dan still makes these mistakes, but the difference between him and like probably me, like every time he does it, he's asking himself why, like why did that deer, did the deer see me? Did he smell me? Did he hear me? Did I did, did I get too close? Did I make a wrong move? Did I move too fast? Like just ask yourself the questions and figure out why that deer got up out of its bed and, and scooted out of there. Yeah. I think that that's an amazing point. You just made that, that, you know, there's a couple like, there's a couple things like guys that, that I think that you and I both look up to in, in terms of hunting and how they get it done and, you know, just their, their woodsmanship and stuff like that, that there's, there's a couple of trends that I've seen with them. And I think you would probably agree, but I'd love to get your, get your take on it is one is they're all freakishly detail oriented. Like they are documenting mm-hmm. things while they're in the tree, like literally keeping diaries while they're in the tree, wind direction, you know, how they po- were positioned in the tree what direction deer were moving, what time they were moving, what was the barometric pressure, what was the wind speed. Like they're keeping notes on this to try to start to put together puzzle pieces about what a property is going to do. They're, they'll also document 
it's a north wind today as far as a wind direction, but when I'm in the tree, it's actually a southwest. So they know that a north wind means a southwest in that spot. You know, it's like it's all those things. And then there's never a time when they have something happen in the timber that they don't ask the question why. And that was it was interesting because this again, you know, this trip was one of the first times where I won't say it's the first time I asked the question why. Like I would ask some pretty basic things. Like when I would see a deer, maybe whenever I'd be like, you know, glassing or in the summer or something like that. And I would see them come out into a field and I'd be like, all right, the wind's doing this. They're doing, it's doing this. He came out in this direction. The wind's in his face. So where's his bed at? You know what I mean? Like I would start to put those pieces together. And this year, you know, I was, I was talking to Dan when we did the most recent podcast. And I was like, the light bulb start like went on this year for me to a degree. I was like, and, and I was like, and I kind of remember like the moment where I recognized, like, I was like, oh shit, this is starting to make sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where, I saw that one deer that I missed come out like the third encounter and he stood at this little knoll and he would, he would not move and he didn't see me and it was 26 yards. I just needed him to move his head so I could get drawn back to take a shot. And he stood at this little knoll at the edge of the draw and was just working his nose, working his nose, working his nose. And then he just turned around and walked the opposite way. Like to your point earlier, that mature deer, like he wasn't coming out of the cover. Like he was staying in the cover come hell or high water. And it didn't dawn on me until I got back to my cabin that night and was laying in bed, like falling asleep. I was like, what the hell was that deer doing? Like, why did he not step out? Like there was no reason for him to not take like three more steps. And then I was like, wait a minute. I was like, he's probably lived there most of his life. I was like that draw right there at the mouth of that draw. I was like, I, I guarantee you the wind swirls at the mouth of that draw. I was like, and I bet he knows that. And he was standing at that little piece of high ground because it was still like midday to where the thermals were going to pull up the, the side of that little knoll. I was like, and he was just waiting for the wind to swirl so the thermals would pull that wind up to him and he would be able to scent check that whole area without coming out of the cover. And I was like, yep. and I was like, son of a bitch. I was like, you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> and so that was when I made the decision. I was like, I got to get back behind there on the edge of that draw where the drop is more significant to where he's going to have to commit that he won't be able to stay in cover if he wants to, if he wants to check, you know, who's grunting in his bedroom. And that was what I did. And that's where I ended up killing that deer, you know? And so it was, yep. it was that little, like asking the question why I firmly believe was the reason why I ended up getting an arrow and a deer, and a deer finally out there. But right. so, uh, do you, do you have, we've been doing this for a little while. Do you have time for one or two more questions? Cause I want to get to the, uh, the one trail camera question that's in here too. Do you have a couple more minutes? Yeah, dude, we can go as long as you want to go, dude. I uh, I got nothing planned. I'm having fun. I, I love this kind of stuff. I mean, this is you know, this is what we dude. This, this is what is you my and, daily life. So. This is what you and I do whenever I drive home from work and call you. <laughs> well, that's that's just it. Like this is no different than like a normal conversation for you and I. So yeah, yeah man, we yeah, we can exactly. we can we can go go for hours. Cool. Yeah, we'll plow we'll plow through a couple more of these. We might actually break this up into like two two sections. But uh, all right. So next question. Is uh this is a good one. I, I, I like this one. I think I actually wrote an article about this possibly, but um it's how do you plan a successful out of state DIY hunt? Do you want to take a stab at this one or do you want me to, to, to roll at this one? You 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 probably have more um you have more way more experience um in this than I do. So why don't, why don't you tackle this first? You probably offer a little more insight. All right. So you know I think you know I, I think out of state hunting is 
perceived to be more daunting than it than it really is. Uh, I think some people are scared off just by the unknown because uh, that's oftentimes what you're kind of walking into. And to me, like that's the part that I get excited about. You know, it's like I you know I, I don't know that I've ever announced this on the on the podcast, but like I have a bucket list, like a, what I'll call a, a bucket uh, a whitetail bucket list, and that is that I would like to kill a respectable buck in every big buck state in uh in the u.s and then if i if i could it's like i'd like to go to canada and and try to kill a good deer with a bow all with a bow that's my you know bucket list you know hunting bucket list item one of them um and so for me it's like i'm always kind of looking at like what the next state's going to be and i know you and i talked about you know 2021 like we're planning for a kansas hunt that's going to be like on our goals and you and i are actually going to roadmap out together like what the next five years look like for hunts for us for whitetails because we want to you know look at what states do we need to start buying points in and stuff like that so we can draw together and i i think the first thing that people ought to do is like if you can you know i feel pretty fortunate that i got a road dog like the guy on the other end of this podcast with me um to that that's into like the adventure and into like the grind and going to have some shitty hunts to hopefully have like you know two days that are you know better than we could ever remember um type of things but as far as like planning them go, you know, there's two different varieties in my opinion. There's like the spur of the moment. You can do those as well. Some of these don't take a ton of planning to do, you know? Uh, and then there's the ones you have to plan for where you have to have some points and you have to travel a little further, you know? So for me, when I started doing out of state hunts, it's like I started with, you know, Ohio for me because it was a state that's relatively close. Uh, wasn't real hard for me to get to. I could actually get there and do a little bit of scouting in the off season. So I, you know, had an idea of what was going on on a piece um, and, and, and so those were kind of some, some positive, hang some truck cameras if you have some time, but really what it all starts is, you know, is think about what your goal is and understand what that is. You know, what, what type of hunt do you want? Like, do you want to, do you want to get run over with deer? Do you want to not see a lot of deer necessarily, but if you do, it could be a jaw dropper. Do you want to hunt land, you know, you know, what's your physical fitness level? Are you willing to grind over mountains and, you know, through tough terrain? Or are you looking for something that's a little bit more flat land? Do you want to hunt food, you know, agricultural food source kind of setups or you want big woods? Like you have to kind of put some parameters around what it is that you're looking for. And then from there, you kind of dive into what state might fit that bill. Right. And so, you know, part of that discussion too, is of course the caliber of animal that you want to be after, you know, that you want to go after. And that plays a large role in not just what state you might go to, but which County you might want to start to look at. Are you going to hunt at an outfitter? Are you going to hunt, you know, this of course question was around DIY, you know, what areas offer the best public land, you know, you know, at that point, once you kind of iron those things out, then, you know, look at your network, man. You know, it's like, do you have friends that live in those areas or do you have friends who have friends that live in those areas that would be willing to just have a, co- a phone conversation with you to, to talk about their experiences hunting in that general area, the caliber of deer, you know, what the, what timing, what's the the timing of the rut really look like? Like those, those types of things, of course, get a hold of like whatever wildlife biologist works for the DNR in that state within that particular wildlife management unit. They have a ton of information and usually will be willing to tell you where they see good deer. Um, because they're in the woods all the time and they're typically probably not hunting a lot of places where they're seeing good deer. Um, from there, man, to do it on the cheap, you know, I, Chad and I've camped in the back of the Exodus, you know, pool behind trailer before together in like sub negative temperatures. <laughs> you know, we've, we've done that before we've taken, we've rented, you know, me and, uh, Chad and our buddy Tate, we've, you know, rented a, uh, a pool behind camper, you know, at one, at one point and just rented one for, you know, seven days, whatever it was to, to stay in. Um, this last trip to Iowa was a, 
you know, I got me a cheap little shitty cabin that was, I want to say, like for 15 days I had it. I think I paid like 550 bucks for it. So it wasn't too terribly expensive to stay, you know. And then, you know, whenever you do Montana style hunts like that was, we were wall tenting it, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So I think you have to just decide like what type of adventure do you want? You know, what type of uncomfortable <laughs> amenities are you willing to put up with? Uh, what caliber of animal do you want? And then from there, man, it's just like, give it hell, dude. Go after it. If it states you got to get points, start planning ahead and start buying points. So you, so you, you know, you, you can plan for when you're going to actually be able to go. Those takes a, take a little bit more planning for the travel. And then, you know, if, if you're someone who this is like the first time you're doing this, like pick something close. You know, and pick something that's like you know four, five, six hour drive away that you can maybe go do some scouting, throw some trail cameras out, and it's not going to be a big hit on your pocketbook. You know, and um, I mean, you can usually get away with like tags and everything if you freeze your food like I do. I freeze, make all my food, freeze it, and then throw it in the crock pot, you know, whenever I get home and heat it up. You know, and you can usually do these trips, you know, if your tags are 250 bucks or so, you can probably gas and everything. You can probably do a seven-day hunt for under a grand all, all in, you know, easy. So, I mean, I think that's how I usually plan mine. You know, it's it, it's become easier now that I've done it a couple of times. I definitely take less time to plan it now. Um I didn't actually start getting ready for the Iowa trip until like the week before I left this time, but, um, but I've had a couple out of state trips under my belt. So that's usually kind of how I, I plan these, plan these hunts, man. It's, it's caliber of deer. Where can I find that caliber of deer? What experience do I want to have? Let's go get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you touched on a lot of great stuff. Um, a lot of great stuff there. And, you know, even though I'm still hunting in my home state of Ohio, I treat almost Every hunt in the South on that specific piece that you and I hunt, I treat that like an out-of-state hunt because it is six hours from home. Yep. Um, but I would start with, you know, on top of the, all the things that you said, I would start with off-season research. And what I mean by that is using Google, using Facebook, using uh, some of these internet forums, and going in there and I guess when I when I when I talk about using those things, I don't mean Google best public land piece in Kansas because right. there's a hundred thousand other guys that are googling the same exact thing and they're they're going to see that number one search result pop up and the majority of people are going to head there, which means there's going to be a ton of pressure. So do a little bit of detective work and figure out what piece could be overlooked and then verify that, like you said with your, you know, the local biologist or, or, or DNR officer. That's something that, as whitetail hunters, like, we don't use that resource enough. Yep. Like, you, you listen to guys in the West, um, you know, contact uh, ODNR office, or DNR officers, biologists, and, you know, those, I mean, those guys love talking and helping people. Like, oh, that, yeah. they're, you know, this is, their, this is their livelihood. This is what they do for a living. That resource is not used enough by, by whitetail guys. Um, so for me, that that would be my starting point. Yeah. Is use use uh, use the internet, and you know when you go, let's say you sign up for Whitetail Kansas Whitetail Hunters, you know dot com or whatever, and that's and that's a Whitetail forum for, um, or a, a you know a hunting forum for Kansas. Don't be the guy that gets on there and says, "Hey, I'm from Pennsylvania. What's what's the best public land spot?" Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Go there. Contribute to the community. Yep. And then, you know, meet some, make some relationships there, provide some value for the other members and 
be organic in the way that you're communicating there. Because yep. if you go on to any of these Facebook groups or forums and say, Hey, I'm from, I'm from New York. I want to come hunt Kansas. What's the best public land spot? Like, dude, no one's going to answer that. Like right. no one's going to give their, their, their secret sauce away. Like, you know, I mean, you might get lucky, but yeah, you're much better off, you know, contributing to that community, making relationships, providing some value and, you know, trying to figure that stuff out uh, on your own. And it's going to take some time. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not going to be an overnight thing. So that's one thing um, that I would say where to start. And then from there, in the off season, get familiar with your gear, make a checklist, um, use everything that you think that you're going to have on that trip, whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like outside of your, um, I, I guess, first line of uh, archery tackle, like right. your tree stands and your bows. Yes, like that's the baseline. Know that stuff. But know what you need to, you know, like you said, meal prep. Know what you need to cook. Know what you need to um, to camp, whether that's a your sleeping bag, whatever, all that stuff is. Make sure you have a checklist. Make sure you're familiar with all that gear. Because when you have those types of gear failures, number one, it's going to take away from the experience of the trip. Or it might add, depending on, you know, your personality and yep. how the situation works out for you. But it could take away, if it's something pertinent to that trip, it could take away time, hunting time. Yep. Because you're going to have to run into town and grab something that you don't have. So it's almost like one of those things where two is one and one is none. To yeah. a point. Yeah. No, you're you got to be careful that you're... Yeah. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I was just going to say you're 100% sure. right. Like that's the, definitely when you're doing those travel hunts, man, it's like you got to have like you got to have all that stuff together because like you're so like you're out you you're on a limited time and you want to be in the game as much as you possibly can be. And anytime you're spending preparing food, cleaning something up, you know, trying to find this is time you're not focused on thinking about what you're going to do the next day, looking at your wind data for the next day, looking at your topo for the next day, like all those things. It's like, I almost feel like it's when I, at least when I go do the out of state hunts, you know, at least this, this last trip, especially it was a little bit different cause I was by myself on this trip, but it was almost like an immersive master's course in bow hunting whitetails. Because that was all I had to do for 15 days. Like, that was it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so there wasn't a moment that was used to think about anything other, th other than that, um, which, mm -hmm. was, which was really cool. And I think the checklist thing is a good point, man. Like, I totally glazed over that. And the reason, when I said, like, I didn't really start preparing for this trip until, like, the week before is because I literally have a checklist that, I've, that I use for all my trips, you know. And right. not for just like a little shameless plug, but like if you want the checklist and, and like kind of how I tee up my hunts and like the process I go through, if you sign up for the newsletter on the truthfromthestand.com webpage, uh, the pop-up that comes up, you can get a download to that news or to that, uh, it's a PDF that you can download and get that checklist along with like how I prepare for a hunt. So that's on Perfect. there as well, but I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just wanted to jump in on that because that was just, that was a great point. No, that's, I mean... 
that's pretty much that would be pretty much it for me. The last thing I would say is, and you've already mentioned this, is having a hunting partner, like being able to share camp with someone with the same uh, positive attitude because you're you're going to have rough days. Like you're going into a spot where you have limited experience. Like you may have never maybe visually laid eyes on or, or uh, shed any boot leather on. Like it's going to be hard. Like keep that in your mind. Like, yes, you could get lucky and anything can happen the first day, but like just like your Iowa trip played out, you're out there for two weeks and like you're grinding, 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 and it happens, you know, the last few hours of – of a two week trip, you yeah. know? So you gotta, you gotta stay positive. You gotta be willing to work and, um, you know, realize that the experience is more than just killing. And it's a lot easier to keep that mentality when you have a good hunting partner. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's like, you know, I would say, you know, my kind of mentality or approach is a little different when I go to Iowa than I, than when I go say, or I, yeah, when I go to Iowa versus say when I, when I'm going to Ohio, cause you know, Iowa was like, I'm going to get to do this once every four years at best, probably mm-hmm. once every five years. And so you really got to make, make hay. And if, you know, if you fail out there over the course of two weeks, it's like, it can, I mean, look, I had a great time and I had come to terms with, you know, coming home with a tag was a possibility. And, and I was, I had come to terms with that and, you know, was positive about it. And that the experience that I had out there with like communicating with deer and vocalizing with them and calling them in, like, it was just, it was incredible. So I could have came home with a tag in my pocket and been like, that was a great trip, right? When I go to hunt Ohio, I take a little bit of a different approach because i that's a place that I know that I'm going to go back often. And so I'm also looking whenever I'm there to try to learn something while I'm there about the place because I know that I'm probably going to plan to come back to hunt it other years. And so I'm not just trying to figure it out for that that hunt. I'm trying to put some stuff in the memory bank that I can use to make hunts later a little easier. Um, to where I'm not starting from, from ground zero. So, you know, if you live in, you know, if you live in Pennsylvania or you live in New York and you're going to travel like to the Eastern shore, you know, in Maryland, or if you're going to go to Ohio or if you're going to go to Illinois or whatever, Ohio might be the better example, you know, you know, that's going to be like a five, six hour drive, whatever the case is, the, you know, you could you should look at it as a as something that you're gonna you know go back and do probably more than once, and and look at it also from like, hey, this is going to be a learning opportunity for me because I'm gonna put some stuff in the memory bank that way when I do come back, you know, I'm gonna have this to build off of, which means I should be closer to quote unquote releasing an arrow success than just an adventure success, right? So I think that's the other thing too is to keep that into in 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 perspective and. Man, there's there's no better place to learn than somewhere that you know. That's a great place. Those types of setups are great opportunities to be aggressive because you're only got so many days, so you don't have to worry about busting up the deer herd. You know what I mean? It's like right. I'm not worried about you know. I don't want to mess someone else's hunt up, but I, if I don't know where they're at, it's like I'm not worried about spooking deer and running them over and stuff like that because I'm here seven days, and chances are I won't see those deer again in the next seven days, and that's okay. I'm gonna go find other deer. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, 100%. The other thing um, that, you know, I I probably don't have experience with, maybe you have, but it's something that the hunting hunting public guys talk about is, you know, making contact with the locals, whether that's at a gas station. 100%. Um, like a private landowner that's butting up that or adjacent to, to the public that you're hunting. Like, talk to the landowners and, you know, and maybe that's more than one. I personally like i talk to enough deer hunters like you can kind of filter out the bs from 
you know, a guy that's maybe only hunted a, a few years, maybe he's a little novice, or maybe he's just you know completely full of it versus a guy that understands actually what's going on. So don't be afraid to to talk to the locals in the area yeah. when you're there, and you know, and take that into account. I guess. Yeah, I mean, on these DIY hunts, it's 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 almost got to be like. I like to use Josh Prophet's quote where it's like he hunts like a coyote for opportunity, you know, and you got to do that even when you're hunting for information. You know what I mean? Like one of the things that helped me out a good bit while I was in Iowa is I ran into this guy, Corey, and I mentioned him a couple of times on the rut log podcasts. Um, Super good dude. We just so happened to come out of the timber at the same time and we weren't hunting. We were hunting almost a mile apart from each other. But we came out at the same time, and he saw my truck. He's like, oh, you got a PA license? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you from PA? And I was like, yep. He's like, you know, um, you come out here often or whatever? And I was like, well, you know, non-resident. I was like, draw. This is my first time I've ever drawn. And so we started talking a little bit, and he was like, oh, where are you hunting in here? And I told him where I was hunting. He's like, oh, you're way down in there. And I was like, yeah. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm hunting up up here along this, you know, fence line by this uh, by this horse farm. And we started just talking and he, you know, told me right away, he's like, yeah, there's like 180 inch non-typical that people have been seeing around here. He's like, so just, you know, he's like, he, it's rut. He's like, so he might make his way down to that bottom side. He's like, so just keep your eyes peeled for him. He's like, he's, he's lurking in here somewhere. And, uh, so we were just talking a little bit and I, he's like, you know, you, you done any scouting around here? And I told him I was there in March and I, you know, we started looking at Onyx a little bit together and I started showing him some of the places that I've scouted. And he's like, yeah, he's like, man, down, he's like, you're over here by this lake. And I was like, yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like, I've been over there. He's like, I've run some truck cameras. Now he grew up in this place. He lives in, I think he lives in Iowa city now, but his family has a, has a a farm there. And I think that's where he grew up. And so he's like, yeah, I've hunted this public land all my life. Like I've run cameras over all over every inch of it. He's like, there's basically not a piece of it that I don't know to boot. He was a forester. And so he also had like a resource that would tell you where like all the clear cuts rotated every year. And so he gave, he turned me on to that. And then he was like, Hey, he's like, you know, take it for what it's worth. He was like, but you're, he's like, you're over by that Lake. He was like, have you looked at this, like this side of it, the West side of it? And I was like, no, I haven't looked at that side. He was like, historically, he's like, I've seen some good sign in there. And he's like, and I've had some encounters with some good deer over the years on that side. He's like, you might want to check it out. And that was literally like the next day I went and checked it out. And that's where I missed that big one, like literally the next day. So it's like, to your point, it's like not every local is going to treat you like that. You know, I, I ran into just a really good dude. Like he could tell that I was, I think what you were just saying, like, I always like to say game recognizes game, you know, where he's mm-hmm. like, he's mm-hmm. like, all right, this guy's here for two weeks to grind, get after it. He's in here, like his truck's here when I pull in, like, so I'm beating him there. You know what I mean? And he's coming out at like zero dark 30. He's like, all right, this guy's here to get after it. You know, I'll tell him some info, you know, and then he started showing me trail camera pictures, you know what I mean? And so, (laughs) which was awesome. You know what I mean? I mean, there were deer that weren't in areas where I was going to be hunting, you know? And I just told him, I was like, Hey, tell me where your, your spots are, where you're hunting, not your spots, but like the general areas you're going to be hunting. I was like, cause I want to stay out of, out of your way. I was like, I don't want to mess you up. And he's like, oh, no, I'm here and here and here and here. He's like, you know, he's like, we're, we're good. He's like, you're not going to mess me up at all. And, uh, yeah, and I, I ran into him at the gas station then, like, a couple of nights later, and we talked, and I told him I missed that deer. And then um, literally we traded phone numbers, and then when I killed that deer, I text him. And we still text. <laughs> you know what I mean? So to the point that he was like, hey, man, he's like, you going to come back in four years when you draw again? I was like, I was like, try keeping me from coming. You know, I was like, I'll be here with bells on. He's like, Next time you come back, he's like, you got a place to stay. He's like, our family cabin will be done by then. He's like, you'll stay at our place. 
And I was like, that's awesome. You know, so it's just like, it's, you know, not, not using it as a resource, but man, like they can help you out in a ton of ways, locals, if you just befriend them and go in humble, you know what I mean? And, 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 and not act like you're the end all be all. And I was just there like, Hey, I'm just the dude here trying to have some fun, trying to find some deer to chase, you know? And he was like, yeah, buddy, let me help you out. You know? And it was, it was great. Right. You know? And so I'll probably be friends with that guy forever. You know what I mean? Just cause he's a good, right. he's just a good dude. You know, I did joke with him and said, Hey, if you ever want to come to Pennsylvania and shoot some 80 inch eight points, you know, I got a place for you to stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. For some reason, I think this is going to be a that's it's going to be a one way street relationship for that for that part at <laughs> least for the hunting part at least I imagine. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I don't know, man. I think we covered that one, the DIY one, pretty well. You uh, you ready to move on? I think this next one's trail cameras. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Which uh, I think you should take this one first because you might know a little something about trail cameras, but. Uh, this guy asks, do you have any, tra- do you, oh, I'm sorry, not do you have, do you move any trail cameras for late season for Intel for this year, or are you using them for the future? No, good, super good question. Um, something we just talked about, uh, Jake and I just talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, it, that question depends on what you, how many trail cameras you have access to. I am a very big believer in annual trail camera data, specifically like in the big woods. And it, it works regardless of what type of properties that you're hunting. Now there's, you know, the data can become a little bit harder to recognize on some of the smaller pieces when you have human intrusion and different things going on. But being able to leave cameras out 24-7 all year without altering or influencing deer movement is going to give you the most valuable and precise data on what those deer are actually doing. And going into the following season, being able to to recognize that, saying, okay, well, this camera was hot in this area between, you know, September 28th and October 17th. Well, why was that? Mm-hmm. Then you can go and and maybe those pictures are going to tell you that maybe there was a scrape there maybe maybe there were white oaks dropping acorns those pictures are going to tell you that and maybe maybe that's dead uh, you know through the rut and picks back up during the late season so one of the things that we talk about when you're when you start to think about moving trail cameras you have to understand that not every deer is going to walk in front of that camera that mm-hmm. is in the area. Unless it's in, you know, you have some type of uh, topography feature or funnel or some kind of pinch that, you know, the deer has to walk in front of that camera. And if you can find those spots, those are, you know, those are great spots to put put cameras. But generally speaking, I know back in 2016, Matt and I um, were running cameras in a specific piece where there were there were two shooters on camera. Uh, one was a big uh, six by six typical that was almost 190 inches and there was another older deer 150 160 inch deer but that 150 160 inch deer would get his picture taken on a camera once and that deer would not walk in front of that camera again ever hmm. and there was a point where and we had cameras again we have access to a lot of cameras I mean we own a freaking trail camera company right. I'm not going to say that we run you know six or seven cameras in the area we we have a lot of them out 
And so I don't know that this someone else would be able to identify, you know, some of the things I'm talking about. But because we had so many cameras scattered in that area, that deer would walk in front of a camera, get his picture taken, and that that specific deer would notice the camera. Okay, mm-hmm. that was one of the first things that we noticed, and that deer would never walk in front of that specific camera again. But you then a couple of weeks later, or a week later, you'd get him on a camera down the ridge or on a different saddle or a bench system. And he, it would be the same scenario. He'd get his picture taken and then not walk in front of that camera. And that happened probably three or four times on different cameras um, between, I'm going to say late summer to mid first week of October, like just when the bow season came in. Mm-hmm. And our thought was like, okay, well, that deer shifted. He's not here anymore. We're not getting any more pictures. Like, he's gone. And just a couple weeks after we had checked those, made that first card pull and made that assumption, like, Matt saw that deer on the hoof, had an encounter with him, and had an encounter again after, you know, after that first encounter. So that deer was there the whole time. He just wasn't walking in front of those cameras. So I guess the moral of the story is before – you know, if you're a guy that has six, seven, you know, just a handful of cameras to run, there's nothing wrong with moving them from from rut spots. Like if you know there's a, if you're familiar with the property, you know that it's hot and that camera's monitoring something that is taking place during the rut and it's going to, you know, that activity's going to die down. Well, that camera's probably not going to do you any good in that specific spot during the late season. So if you're comfortable with that, go ahead and move it. But if it's an area that you don't have historical data on and you don't know what December, January, February is going to bring during the late season, I would say be hesitant to move to move that spot, to remove that camera from that spot because not getting data is also going to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Looking into, again, looking into that next year. So I would just say be cautious of moving cameras too frequently. Um, you know, another thing that we see is, you know, is is human and this isn't in the big woods i i really feel like the deer that we're hunting are a little less uh tolerable to human intrusion they they don't like it mm-hmm. and that may be different you know from piece to piece deer to deer whatever but you go into a spot hang a camera or go pull a card it usually has some type of influence on the activity in front of that camera for you know four to seven days is typically like the rule of thumb that 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 we see now again like you're going to have one-and-a-half-year-old deer, two-and-a-half-year-old deer, does. Like, we're talking about mature deer, four, five, six, seven-year-old deer, you know, knowing that there's been a human in there, knowing something that's, knowing that something's a little bit different in that spot and and either skirting it, uh, you know, walking behind it, walking down a wind because they know that there was, you know, there was something there. So just before you move your cameras, ask yourself why you're not getting the data that you think you should be getting, or you're not getting the pictures that you think that you you should be getting and be reluctant to move them. If you don't have historical data telling you that the spot is going to be dead or invaluable. Now, obviously like if you have cameras, like I, like I mentioned during the rut, they're on a, they're on a travel corridor from between doe bedding areas or food sources that are hot during that time of year. Yes. Like it's probably going to be dead and you know that go again go ahead and move them but just be you know just be cautious be hesitant and ask yourself why you're not getting pictures there because maybe maybe you're not getting pictures there and those deer are uh uh using a different terrain feature that's only 20 or 30 yards from that camera but the camera's yep. not picking it up yep. so sometimes those 
sometimes those movements or those changing of locations, they're not necessarily super, super drastic. It could be just a little bit, uh, a little bit down your, down the ridge or a little bit down the edge where there's something else that, uh, is, you know, drawing deer movement. So just think about that stuff. Uh, I guess before, before you actually take the steps to, to move that camera. Right. Yeah. For me, <clears throat> I fall on the other side. I mean, you know, I, since we hunt together on that one piece, it's like I have the luxury of, you know, utilizing the data that you have, not just from like a given year, but over over the years and also your brain of like all the stuff you've seen in that data over the years. So I'll just talk because I think you covered like that aspect of it, you know, really well. I think, you know, the one bit of insight that I can provide is, you know, a lot of what I run my cameras on you know, is, is predominantly public around here in, in, in Philadelphia. And then a, a private parcel back home that I've had, you know, two different parcels that I've run cameras on. And typically what I'll do is, you know, I will have cameras set up in the summer, of course, that are, are prioritized on just inventory, right? I'm just trying to figure out who's who's around, who made it from last year. You know, it, it, is there a primary kind of, you know, food area and is, is can I kind of start to figure out is there a, 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 a predominant kind of you know pattern back to bed you know if I can figure out where that's at instead of made it maybe just outside of the bedding area so I can get a sense of like well, what times you know a buck coming back that I'll maybe want to target you know so I understand whether or not it's like you know like this year for example I had one that was coming back at like 4 a.m and I knew that I was close to his bed then as it got closer to the season like he kept getting closer and closer and closer to daylight to like when the season opened like he was he was showing up in front of that camera like five minutes after shooting light. You know, I never caught up with him, but like that was what I was getting from that particular camera. But I do what I'll typically do then is like I'll move those cameras and move them to like rut spots and start putting them over scrapes and stuff like that. Like what you typically do during pre rut and rut. But then what I'll do like this time of year, and I'm actually it's funny we're talking about this because I'm literally gonna go do it tomorrow morning, is in spots that I'm trying to figure out that is not a specific like over a scrape rut spot, like because I'm hunting some smaller parcels where it's like one parcel in particular, it's like there's not a single scrape on the whole property. There's some rubs, but there's not a single scrape. And so what I really kind of def- use on that property is just like they're defined travel routes. And that's what I'm using to kind of like not only inventory, but also intercept. That camera will stay there all year round because of what I'm doing is exactly what Chad was mentioning. He was like, between last year and this year, I figured out when the dead spots on that property are. So I know when it's not even worth my time being in there to hunt bucks. Now, maybe to fill some doe tags, you know, I can figure out when does are going to be traveling around or when they disappear and when they come back. But for bucks, it's like I know they'll be through during the rut, usually around the 17th, between like the 15th and the 17th. Like there's going to be a shooter that comes through. It's happened two years in a row. And I know that basically from the 17th on, I'm going to have like next to zero buck activity on that property like zip, like, like not even get a rack buck on camera, you know? Um, so that one, it's like, I will, I will leave, I will leave there. Now I will say that like some of this, uh, these other pieces of public that I'm, you know, checking out this year that I hunted this year is really the first year that I've been on them. So, which is why I'm going out tomorrow to put out some cameras in some spots that I had over the summer to try to see, basically take them off scrapes, put them back in like to travel corridors and, and terrain features. So I can see, what deer are on the property? Are they using this terrain feature? Are they not using this terrain feature? Just, you know, trying to figure out all the things that you were kind of talking about. Um, now on private, you know, different, you know, separately, it's like, I kind of follow the same 
approach because it's still a small parcel, even though it's private property and not public. It's like the deer kind of kind of react and, and move the same way. So in those places, if I have a defined terrain feature, I'm going to use it because what I, it's going to hopefully tell me, and that was how I caught up with that one deer lucky, was I've basically used the cameras very similar to how you know Bill Winky uses his, where it's like I got him on camera a couple of different times. I had an encounter with him where I could start to like tighten the, the noose on him and then at that point, I just started put, placing cameras in like the known travel, you know, corridors that he could use from where I thought he was bedded. And so whenever I'd find him on one, then I would move it and kind of just kept moving back toward his bed till I figured out where it was at. And then at that point, I knew where he was bedded and I knew where he was traveling to. And so, you know, had a shot opportunity to seal the deal. Um, and so in those instances, yes, I'm going to use, but I figured that out over letting cameras out over the course of three years on that property figuring out how the deer were moving, what scrapes they were hitting, when the certain scrapes went cold, what deer went, you know, moved only at, you know, under dark, you know, that deer particularly lucky, like he would be on the property during daylight until about October 15th. And then he'd be nocturnal until after, when I say nocturnal, he wouldn't be on our property until nightfall until about December 26th. And he would start showing back up just at, with like five, 10 minutes of daylight left. And so that was all from letting cameras out and run 24-7 for, I think that property, I did it for like three years straight. Um, And I was able to really start to pin down like what the price, like then that property, if I I haven't hunted it in probably two years, I think. If I do, there's really only two spots on that entire farm that I'll hunt because those are the only two spots that I I feel confident that I'm going to see that that bucks are going to use those particular areas. The other spots on the farm, I think, are kind of a crapshoot, but there's two particular spots that my data has told me. If you want to kill a, the better buck on the property, it's one of these two places. So that's kind of how that's kind of how I use them, you know, and that's how I would move mine, you know, having more of a limited amount of trail cameras and on smaller parcels. So I don't know right. if is anything right. else no, to add there. Yeah, I think that there is, and and um, it's it's almost off. I'm going to piggyback off you a little bit um, about like the bill winky approach about casting that wide net if you're on a piece like let's say that you're hunting a piece regardless if it's public or private and you don't have a deer like you're after a specific deer whether it's a you know 100 i guess specific class of deer 120 inch deer 130 inch deer, whatever it is doesn't matter just looking for a buck to hunt um what you talked about like leapfrogging cameras or like tightening that noose that is a great way in the late season to make something happen within you know 40, 30 days, 45 days, or whatever, how many days you have left in your season is casting that broad net of cameras. Let's, let's take that number as, as six cameras. Mm-hmm. You're placing them in uh, terrain features, topographical features, saddles, benches, um, or edge, food sources, and getting consistent pictures of a deer in a location, whether that's travel route or, or food. And then taking those other cameras where you don't have pictures of that deer and then leapfrogging them back to kind of, I guess, locate that bedding area to be able to make a move within, you know, four or five weeks. Like that is also a great strategy. If you don't have that historical data to kind of reference those spots that uh, are historically good and historically bad. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I didn't, and this, and this isn't related to late season, but since we're talking about trail cameras and we had the question about DIY hunts, it was one of the things that was super valuable for me that helped me ultimately kill that deer was when I missed that deer in that area and I was hunting over a primary scrape area. And what I ended up doing was I ended up taking my, my render, my cell camera and I hung it on that scrape because what I wanted to know was 
was that buck still hitting that scrape? Were there does hitting that scrape? If there were does hitting that scrape, then that was that was a good sign, right? And so what I was trying to figure out was, were there deer still like using that that piece, that general area, right? And because if it went cold, then I knew that like I probably need to go scout and hike and walk somewhere else until that spot turns back on, right? And that so that was kind of my my approach, and so. For me, like going forward, especially on these DIY hunts, it's like if you have cell service, I was just fortunate in that particular spot there was cell service because there wasn't cell service in a lot of places I was at. But using something like that to just tell you that there's deer, because you're not there for, you know, two months, you're there for two weeks. But all I'm looking for at that time is I'm looking for proof of life, right? Because I don't want to burn a hunt when I'm not going to see, have the possibility of seeing, seeing deer. And so for me, you know, I was getting nocturnal, I was getting nighttime pictures of, of decent bucks hitting that scrape and then does hitting it during daylight. So I was like, bucks are going to be in the area because there's still, there's still does, you know, hitting that licking branch. There's still does that are in that area. Bucks are still hitting that scrape. So I know that there are bucks in the area, not just because they're on camera, but also because there's does in the area. So that told me that it was worthwhile to continue to spend my time there. If there would have been nothing hitting that scrape, I would have moved it to another scrape that was, you know, not too far by or not too far away. And if I got the same thing on that and that happened for like three days, I would have been out of there. It had been like onto the new piece, you know. Um, right. I may have been onto the new piece before that and just went and tried to bump deer, you know. So I think, you know, and I know that this question was specific about late season, but I wanted to take the opportunity with trail cameras and talking about the DIY hunt. It's like, man, don't underestimate the value of having a camera that you can use to just validate that you have activity in an area. So you're not burning days on spots that aren't, are just dead because you're going to have some of that on those DIY hunts because you're walking into places that you just don't know a lot about, you know? And so anything, and and to me, it's like places that I'm familiar with, I want long-term data and long-term information because I do believe in annual patterns, right? I've, I've seen them happen. So, so in that sense, it's like, I want that large data set because I, I'm going to make plans over the course of years to hunt these different properties, right? When I'm on an out of state hunt and I've got two weeks to get something done, like I'm looking for, you know, MRI, most recent Intel, like, and I'm making decisions yep. off of that while I'm scouting and what I'm seeing on cameras, like up to like the, almost right. the, the hour, you know? So right. then right. I want to just add that in because I think that that's important when we're talking about trail cameras because i think they're useful in both instances i think it depends on what your need is and what your objective is you know should determine how you're going to use it yeah well yeah the cell cameras uh, i mean they change they change the game in efficiency of what you're doing i mean a hundred percent uh it's crazy the the uh the amount of advantages that you get from running cell cameras now obviously if you could do that that's great but one other thing i would say is you know, if you're not running cell cameras, if you're running regular SD card cameras, don't be afraid to put them in at stand locations or locations that you think you're going to hunt and check them on the way in. If it's not going to, you know, negatively influence uh, deer movement for that specific hunt, but placing them at stand locations is also going to help you be more efficient. And uh, especially on like some of that DIY stuff, like if you have a, uh, you know, you're in a location for, you have seven days to make it happen on an out-of-state hunt. And, you know, maybe you, you hunted a tree or a set the night before and you were going to hunt it uh, the next morning or that night. Like, don't be afraid if you have an extra camera to throw that up at that location um, and be able to gain that, 
you know, MRI, you know, even within the last 24 hours, because if, you know, again, if there's nothing happening there, that camera's, that camera's probably going to tell you, uh, what's going on. So yeah, that's just another thing I wanted to add there. Yeah. I, I think that that's a good point. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, especially if it's a DIY hunt and you're on public, like you should, should be hanging your camera up off the ground. Right. So you shouldn't have any fear of the deer, you know, deer seeing it at that point, if you're taking those, those measures. But I would say on those out of state DIY hunts, man, like I probably hunt like on, man, I would say, let's put it this way. I'm not afraid to hang a camera and literally hunt. I've hunted the same tree that my camera was on before and saw deer, you know, it's oh, like, I'm yeah, not, a, yeah, I'm not afraid to do that because on those hunts, it's like, I don't want to necessarily know that there's deer 50 yards away because I can't, I, I may not be hunting that spot. You know what I mean? It's like, I need to know right. where, like, if I'm hanging a camera somewhere on a DIY hunt, it's because I'm going to hunt that spot, you know, because I'm, mm-hmm. unless, unless I know that like there's a defined pinch point 30 yards down that they have to be going through or 50 yards away that they exactly. have to be going through, then, then that's a different story. But a lot of these places that I'm, I'm hunting on DIY hunts, it's like, a lot of them are big woods to where there's not like super defined pinch points. I mean, some of the trails I was finding in Iowa were like, they, it was just like scuffed up leaves. And I was like, Oh shit, that's actually a deer trail here. Like where around here where I'm at, it's like, it would look like a goat path, like a cattle path because it's like we're on small parcels and deers, deer are funneled into smaller areas out there. It's like, it's just like it is in, you know, in that piece we hunt in Ohio, it's like they could go anywhere. So a deer trail in those pieces aren't like, this beaten down thing into the dirt. It's like literally like a very small, subtle indentation of the ground where the leaves are slightly scuffed. Like the leaves aren't even matted down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So yeah. it's, yep. you know, it's just like, you have to think about like, what are all the odds you're up against and how is the camera as a tool going to help you make the best decisions? Right. And that's how I kind of try to frame it. So, yep. yep. All right, man. I think uh, we got a. Uh, you still game? We got like two more, I think. Yeah, yeah. Let's do them. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Um, this one's an interesting one. You might actually be really good to answer this one because you're you're newer at this. But um, what essentials do you need to start a podcast? <laughs> um, there's not really. There's not too much. I think you need. Uh, I, Essentials, you need some type of recorder and microphone. That's basically it. Um, You know, I don't know that you need editing equipment right from the beginning. And we, I mean, we went ahead and bought all that stuff. Um, Used, you know, obviously we had laptops and and, and whatnot. We just, uh, now that we're set up, we have actually have a mobile set with this Zoom. I'm not not even sure what uh, model it is, but it has like six channel input. on that zoom recorder that's mobile just records uh records to an sd card and then we also have uh, a studio set where there's several different microphones boom mics um uh, a mixer an amp there's a bunch of stuff going on there and it's honestly like it's for the level that we do it at it's probably too much for us we probably would have been better off from the beginning just getting this little um mobile recorder that uses an sd card and, and batteries it i mean it mm-hmm. works it works pretty dang well. Yep. Um but that's that's really all you need. Yep. So I think the essentials like I, I have a, I, I'll cut it a couple of different ways, right? So I think the one method I would say is I will take the Gary Vaynerchuk method is, is that if you have a if you have a smartphone, you have a podcast set up. Like you don't need anything yep. more than that. 
if it's you and a guest, you can speak right into your phone. You know, I know everyone's concerned about audio quality, but if you're just getting started and you want to put out content, you can use your phone. The only thing that you would really need, I mean, you can, you can post it for free on Facebook if you want to, an audio track or whatever. If you're looking for like an RSS, like syndicated feed or whatever, then you got to go with like some type of hosting platform, like a Libsyn or Podbean or whatever it is. There's a bunch of them out there. They're all basically the same. They just, you upload your stuff to it and then it, blasted out to all the you know all the normal places where you'd find podcasts whether it's stitcher itunes whatever the case is uh, youtube etc um so that is like the down and dirty way like the one step up from that i actually use this approach that i'm about to share with you now like for some mobile recording one of the podcasts i did in iowa i used it there's an app for your iphone and i think it might have an android app as well called backpack i think i think it's like 10 bucks and i literally got it and put it on my phone because I wanted to be able to have something like, you know, you run into interesting people at weird places, like at the airport or something like that. Right. And this actually hooks up with a, um, a smartphone compatible lav mics. Um, and so I have two of those. I just literally plug it into my iPhone with that. And it has like a little mixer on it where I can mix it. Now you don't get two tracks of audio. You get one track of audio. So you have to make sure both people's lav mics are about the same distance away. And one person's not louder than the other, because when you go to, share it or whatever that you want to make sure that the levels are okay. And that you can literally just publish straight from that app. If you want to publish it out into the world. Um, and, or what I'll do is I'll often just bring it into, you know, garage band is what I use to do my mixing and stuff like that. And I'll just EQ it a little bit. So it sounds a little bit better and then send it out into the world. So that's another really easy, you know, cheap setup. The setup I run is pretty similar to what Chad, Chad was talking about. You know, my, my setup for doing this for almost four years is pretty unelaborate. You know, I essentially have a MacBook Pro that I had regardless, right? So everyone usually has a computer at this point. Um, editing software is I'm just using GarageBand. I do have the Adobe suite, but I really don't use it because it has way more than you need for a podcast. So I still just stick with GarageBand because it's easy and it works every time I use it. Um, I have an H6, a Zoom H6, which I think Chad was mentioning. Um, and then a couple Audio-Technica headset mics that I that I use. And then a small four-channel a headphone mixer. That way, whenever I have, you know, multiple guests, we can all hear each other in our heads. Um, and that's it. I mean, there's not a lot that you need. I think more than anything you need, I would say you need a, a point of view. You need a perspective. I think that that's the most important thing because that's where your content is going to come from. And then like all the other stuff is just tools to get to, to capture your voice and get it out there. So you don't need a lot. I think the biggest thing is, is if you want to start one, take the, take the least, you know, the path of least resistance and just start doing it, you know, um, the one thing when I started mine was, you know, you, you'll find a lot of reasons to talk yourself out of shit, whether it's a podcast or anything else. Um, and, you, and you'll probably hear yourself say this exact phrase. Cause I, I heard myself say it when I heard this piece of advice from like, I was actually ironically listening to a podcast when I got this piece of advice where they said, if you constantly say, you know, how to exactly, I'm trying to remember exactly how they say, say it. I can't until I, right? That's like such a common phrase that people say, I can't start a podcast until I have the right microphones. I can't start a podcast until I have the right recorder. I can't start a podcast until I understand how to use GarageBand. I can't start a YouTube channel until I have an expensive, the right camera. All those things are bullshit. I can't until I never did shit. You just need to start doing it. And not have an excuse. And then once you start doing it, yep. it becomes really easy to progress and grow and get better. And just to be honest with you, you're going to suck when you start. 
<laughs> we all do. You know what I mean? I go back and I listen to like the first like the first the uh, <laughs> first like ten episodes that I put out and I'm like, what the hell was I doing? And furthermore, I was like, man, who was that first sponsor? What the hell were they thinking? Oh, that was Chad. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh it's uh you're gonna suck when you start. It just it is what it is. Like you That's never it. no one's ever been good at yeah. anything when they started, you know. It's unless you're like you know, I don't know, LeBron James or something like that, but I'm sure he sucked at first. Um, so the most important thing is just getting started. And once you do that, it's, it's, you, you'll gain momentum. It's like a, it's like a, it's like an avalanche. It'll start at a, a little trickle. And then before you know it, it's blowing down trees in small villages. So, yep, um, yep. yeah, that's my, that's my advice. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, but that's basically what's, uh, no, I agree with that a hundred percent. Like the equipment is, um, such a lower priority i would say the other thing i would say is have a content schedule have uh you know do your due diligence on the topics and make some talking points because when you first get started it's like you said it you're gonna suck at it we sucked at it like we go back listen to our first four episodes and they were like absolutely they're terrible no like, yeah why did anyone I mean, even tune in and listen to this like, yeah it's terrible yeah like, there's a bunch of ums and like pauses and like you're just yeah, you're you're drawing blanks for words. Um, you're nervous, and that's expected. Like, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the first one you do isn't going to be a polished, finished product. So, don't be afraid to start, like you said. But ha- I think having a content schedule, um, having a few recorded podcasts in the bank to where you can publish episodes on on the regular mm-hmm. to get your viewers and uh, you know the people that are following your content used to those episodes coming out every Wednesday. Having that yeah. bank of uh, four or five episodes, I guess, because things are going to pop up. Like, I'm sure that, you know, whoever's sent that question, they work a normal job, they have families, they have all these other things pulling them in a hundred different directions. Things are going to pop up and you, and there's going to be a week where you don't have time or something comes up and you're not able to record something to get it out on that, on, on your, on the, on that scheduled uh, publish date. So that's what I would say is, you know, yeah. have a content schedule, have some things in the bank. And then those first couple episodes, like just make some talking points on on the uh, on the on the topic that you want or speaking on that you could just reference in case you hit that difficult spot, you know, where yeah. you're drawing a blank and you can't think of you know something to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I when I first started, it, I had I would always make an outline of some sort of like the que- the type of questions I wanted to ask, and and then I also did research on whoever the guest was going to be and stuff like that. That way, I knew who they were and knew kind of what their perspective was going to be, and was just doing my due diligence. It's almost like journalism to a degree. Um, I wanted to be smart on the topic that we were going to talk about so I could add value. Um, now, as I've gone along, it's like it's become less and less of talking points and more of like you know, me just kind of winging it. Um, but I will jot down like a couple bullet points, but like, okay, I want to definitely cover this. I want to cover this. Oh, they recently did this. I want to ask them about that. You know what I mean? Like, and that's more where it is now because it's more, you know, I've done, this will be the 157th episode. I think that I've done the one that you and I are recording right now. I think it's 157. Mm -hmm. So, you know, plus however many other ones that I've been on. So it's like, at this point now, it's like, I kind of, have figured out how to like flow the, you know, the, the, the program, if, if you will, but there are still times like, and I'm just going to be honest and transparent here, man. There's sometimes when I get guys on that, you know, I know that I'm going to be nervous because maybe they're like, they're, they're well-known or maybe that they're like 
really well respected in a particular area that they have a really deep understanding of that I'm going to come in like with very, very scratch the service understanding. And I, and I don't want to ask questions that are kind of not beneath them, but that show that I don't, that I don't understand, you know what I mean? Like I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And the most recent one that that happened with, um, and I was a little bit nervous to do it, um, was Lantani because the dude knows his conservation stuff like in and out. Right. And I'm talking to the guy who's leading like one of the like hottest, like most impactful conservation groups of of North America right now. You know what I mean? It's growing like leaps and bounds and they're, and they're moving and shaking and they're getting shit done. And I had, you know, whatever it was like 40 minutes of his time to hang out and just talk to him. Super nice dude. But before we started talking, definitely a little nervous because I was like, man, I don't want to say something that just is completely wrong and makes me look like an idiot, you know, but right. Right. Funny thing is, is I don't have a problem doing that every other day of my life, but that day it was like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, all right. On to the next question. We have two, two more. This one, this one will be a good one. What do you usually do for a workout? What's our, what's our workout regimen? You want to take this one or you want me to go first? Ooh, um, I am, I am all over the map with this. I, uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to say that, uh, I'm like a f- fitness freak or fitness model or, or, you know, um, somebody like fitness personality that you're going to see on Instagram, but I do take it pretty seriously. It's something that I've done probably since I've been 15 because of my athletic career, you know, mm-hmm. collegiate football, pro ro- pro rodeo. Like it's something I, I've always carried with me and it helps me deal deal with, uh, actually I think it helps me more mentally than it does actually physically. Yeah. But I, uh, I, I'm going to talk some age here, I guess. Like I'm, I'm approaching that, that 40, that 40 number. Uh-huh. Get which, some, you know, get some. You, that's just it, man. There's wear and tear on these bones. There's wear and tear on these joints. Um, so it, this, it's going to be different from, you know, age to age, person to person. Everybody's going to be at different fitness levels. Everybody's going to have different goals. But what I would say is regardless of what you're trying to obtain, number one, you should identify what your goal is. You need to be disciplined in your workout approach there's going to be days where you don't want to work out. There's going to be days that you, if you're working out in the morning, like you're not going to want to wake up at four o'clock in the morning or four or mm-hmm. five o'clock in the morning, do it before work. But you got to just do it anyways. Like it's not always going to yeah. feel good, but after you get it done, it will feel good. Yeah. Um, but I guess as far as the, the workout regimen goes, I do about three days of weight training. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a lot of that stuff, I personally focus on compound movements i'm not a big isolation guy i'm not a bodybuilder so i'm looking to do big movements that um, are going to target several muscle groups and the majority of the time right now because of my age like i'm not doing a lot of heavy weight because it's hard on my it's hard on my shoulders it's hard on my hard on my knees it's hard on my joints um so i'm doing super super high rep stuff similar to like um you know, high interval intensity training or high intensity interval training, the, the hit stuff mm-hmm. where I'm doing, I don't want to say super sets, but I'm doing giant sets of like three or four exercises back to back to back to back. Um, and I kind of break that, I guess within that 
three days, I don't do like a push pull day. Mm -hmm. I will do uh, a workout that isolates and keeps blood in certain regions, regions of my body. So I will train chest and shoulders together. Mm -hmm. And then I will do a day where it's, um, you know, legs. I train my back by itself. I do not train arms at all because again, I'm doing all these compound movements, um, that are, you know, they're requiring my traps to work when I'm working my shoulder or working my shoulders out, working my chest out because I'm doing so many presses. Um, when I'm training my back, I'm doing a ton of different types of pulls. So I'm, you know, my biceps are, you know, your biceps are so much smaller than your lats and typically they're, they should be, if your body's proportionate, they should be not as strong as your back. So, you know, as I'm doing these big movements for the major muscle groups in my body, I'm also recruiting those smaller muscle groups um, just as well. But on top of three days of weight training, I'm trying to fit in two days of cardio with two days of stretching. And then uh, I'll be honest, like, I don't do anything for core. Like, that's mm-hmm. just, I'm one of the guys, like, at 40 years old, I don't follow a super disciplined diet. Like, I eat ice cream. I drink beer. <laughs> I eat pizza. I eat potato chips at right. midnight and I walk around with, I walk around with a six pack. That's just, you know, it's just my genetic makeup. I'm blessed yep. and lucky, but that's kind of, that's kind of, that's kind of just me and what I, uh, what I do. Yeah. So it's funny cause if people haven't picked up on this podcast, how, how similar we are in, <laughs> in most, in most things, which is probably why we're, well, we're good friends. Um, yeah. 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 I, I follow a similar, similar regimen. Um, it little little bit different, but like the philosophy is kind of the same. You know, I I am in that forty year old threshold, um, and you know, and I, and you know, I grew up grappling and working out was a big part of you know big part of that, of course. Um, you know, but then when when it was in the band and stuff like that, I just I'll put it lightly and say I didn't do myself any favors in in a multitude of ways during those during that decade. Um, and for me, working out was um, getting like my mind right again. Um, you know, cause you know, stress, anxiety, like all those things that, you know, sometimes people don't want to talk about, like those things are real and, you know, and I have them just like anyone else does, right. I have a stressful job. I'm raising a, you know, a family and married and mortgage and all those things. And, you know, and there's days where there's, you know, there's anxiety over things that probably are meaningless, but you get yourself, you know, kind of in a, in a, in a cycle of worry about certain things. And so what I found for me, probably whenever I was like, in my late twenties, I was probably like 28, you know, I found that rather than, you know, eventually at some point looking to be like medicated because I end up with high blood pressure or whatever, I was like, let me just try to manage like the stress and anxiety and all those things with, with working out, you know, and, and having a better diet and, and just being, you know, being you know, mobile essentially. And so that's really kind of where it started for me. And it's evolved now into just like a lifestyle. Like I've been doing it for years now to where now it's just like every day I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I work out before I go to work. Like that's just what I do. It's like part of my routine. And if I don't get it in, like I don't feel right. And so it's just become like brushing my teeth essentially. Um, you know, I do follow a pretty regimented diet. Like Chad will attest to this, even when we go out on hunts and stuff like that. It's like I still eat very, I'm still very strict about what I eat. I've gone through a bunch of different, you know, diet types. Um, you know, there was a period of time there for a while where I was actually, you know, vegetarian for probably like a year. Um, I, I was I was not well. I was ill and, and I needed to kind of like get rid of a lot of toxins in my life. And so 
one of the things I did was, you know, stopped eating red meat and stopped smoking and I stopped drinking. And that was ra- basically when I got out of the band. Um, and I needed to basically just to reset myself. So for a year, I didn't do any of that. Um, and then slowly over time, like reintroduced meat back into my diet and stuff like that. And now I basically follow a keto diet um, that teeters back and forth between a keto and a paleo diet. So if I'm really being disciplined about it, it's like I eat pretty strict keto and I'll do that for like a reset of like, you know, 30 days or whatever, uh, maybe 60 days, just depending. And then I'll waffle back and forth between keto and paleo essentially whenever I'm not being super strict. Um, and as far as like the workout goes, you know, I'm kind of the same as Chad. Like I'm not trying to win any awards anymore. Um, you know, body sometimes doesn't heal as quickly as it would. The one thing I will say is that I listen to my body much more than I used to. So if I wake up a day and my knee doesn't feel right, I'm not going to push it. It's like that, that day may have been, you know, supposed to be a resistance day, but because my knee doesn't feel right today, I'm actually going to do yoga today, you know, cause I'm going to try to listen to my body and not push it because I'm trying to stay healthy and not be injured. Um, necessarily. And there's nothing that's really worth me getting injured because I'm not trying to prepare for a competition or anything like that. But I do super lightweight. Like I don't lift anything heavier than 30 pounds, period. Um, everything is done with like anywhere from like 15 to 20 pound dumbbells or kettlebells. And it's all functional movements. And it's all, you know, usually it's all like MMA like fight training type of movement. So it's a lot of like bobbing and weaving like you would in boxing. It's a lot of like, you know, doing a lunge with like a kick and a punch, you know, with, you know, a, with a 15 pound dumbbell in your hand. Um, yeah, I'll usually do that one day a week. And then I'll usually do a kettlebell set one day a week in between those two. I'll do some type of like fight training, um, grappling style, like cardio workout. Um, and then the day after that will be, um, it's usually like a, like a pool day, uh, more so where it's like more of like a back workout, but every day has every day legs is like, there's a leg component to it. Cause it all has some type of squat that's, that's involved or lunge that's involved. Um, and so it's all just functional body movements that keep me, you know, my whole goal is to be able to be fit, to be able to hunt and do all the things that I want to do. And so my strength is more in the functional way to where it's like, you know, I'm not going to be able to put it this way. My brother-in-law lifts religiously and um, has competed in like different shows and stuff like that. And when he and I get together and we kind of grapple or whatever, he's like, man, he's like, it's, he's like, it's crazy how freakishly strong you are. He's like, but you know, he's like, but I lift like insane amounts of heavy weight. And the thing is, is like, he lifts it from here to here. Like I lift it from my arms are down and my arms are up to my chest. Like, that's it. It's like everything that I'm doing is like what you would actually do in the world. Um, and so that's the, I guess that's the difference. And so that's really my approach. And so it's, it's a combination of like, you know, you know, kicking, punching all with resistance, um, grappling style, cardio yoga. And, um, and that's pretty, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I kind of gave up running because it was, it was killing my knees. Um, before I go on like a Western hunt, I'll, that I will up the ante a little bit and then I will do all the same stuff I just mentioned, but I will do it with like a, with a, a weighted vest on that's anywhere from like 20 to 40 pounds. Um, you know, and that's usually like toward like the end, whenever I'm getting ready to go on the hunt. So I'm ready to, to carry the pack weight and stuff like that. Um, uh, but I'm usually really careful about that. Cause last time I did that, I ended up having an injury right before I left and, um, I ended up healing up before the trip, but I was a little touch and go. I thought I might've had to miss the trip cause I thought I, I, I messed up my foot pretty bad, but ended up being okay. But yeah, I mean, that's really where I'm at. I mean, I, I ended up, 
having surgery surgery at one point several years ago from lifting that I, I tore some stuff and had to get some stuff fixed. And so after that, I was kind of like, yeah, you know what? I don't, I'm, I don't need to impress anybody. I can just be functionally healthy and strong and, and good to go. So that's, that's my, my setup, man. It's nothing too crazy. I do it all at home cause I don't like to go to the gym and, uh, and that's it. Yep. Man. Yep. I'm the, I'm uh, the opposite there. Like I don't like, to train at home like i like to do that away and have a place where like that's you know i'm it's dedicated that's the reason that uh, i'm waking up it's that's my focus while i'm there that's what i can concentrate on and kind of detach from the world because like i said like a lot like you the mental health aspect of having uh putting in that physical work like to me that is so much larger mm-hmm. than some of the physical stuff that you're getting, letting those endorphins release. Uh, it allows me to deal with stress just like you. It allows me to deal with anxiety. If I have any, like you, it allows you to just, uh, and, and also like I'm a super competitive guy. Like we're both pretty competitive. Yeah. And even though that I'm not training for a competition or training, um, you know, for anything specific, like in the competitive space, like as an athlete, like there's still a little bit of drive there. Like you know what, I don't want to get up this morning, but I'm gonna go work out anyway because I know I'm better than that. Like I'm gonna yep. be better than I was yesterday. So there's still, even though there's nothing there that you're specifically training for, like I still feel like anyone who is that disciplined to go in and put in the work, like there's still a little bit of competitiveness there. It's just, uh, it's just focused in kind of a different space, I guess. Yeah, some days the competitiveness is just getting it in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, that's just it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, there's yeah. there's some days where I'm just like, you know, look, it, 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 you know, I think the one thing that working out also does too is it it is a uh, it creates a a um, a forced honesty upon you um, because you might think one day that you got it, you know what I mean? Or if if you walk into like workout a day and and you just ain't feeling it, like you're your body, the, the, the weights will let you know, or the resistance will let you know that you ain't got it that day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't power through it and and manage through it. And I always say, it's like, look, going through the repetitions, even if, even if I'm my, I'm in a space where I can't, where I'm, where what I'm providing isn't the, everything I can provide isn't a hundred percent because maybe there's, maybe mentally I have something going on that I'm just not able, able to focus, or maybe I'm, maybe my shoulder's a little bit jacked up, so I'm having to modify something so I can get the workout in and not hurt myself any further or whatever, right? Like, to me, I look at that as a win because the alternative was just to not do it, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just being just powering through it and saying, you know what, I'm going to do what I can today because, look, in life, that's sometimes all you can do is what you can. You know, it's like it's, does it, you don't always reach the mountaintop. That's reality, you know? And I think working out is a good reminder of that um you know that, that that you don't win all the time you know and so and yep. and, and that's a good lesson to kind of kind of take but uh we got one more question man it's the, the marathon's almost over one more question this guy says i am from delaware county so that's actually right, right around here where i live uh or close to where i live uh where should i look or how should i look or uh, what should I look for when trying to find private property to hunt? So basically he's asking, you know, how should I go about getting private access? I think is really what the question is. So do you want to, you want to crack at this one first? Yeah. Take it. 
Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll take it. I actually have a good friend um, who started as actually an Exodus customer uh, and ended up living just right down the road from me, and we became good friends over the last eighteen months. And actually, did Jesse Tumpack? I know you've talked to him on the phone, but yeah, we was talked. actually he lived out that way for a little bit, but he did. Yeah, and he actually turned me yeah. onto some spots around here. He, I've been meaning to have him on the show. We just haven't. We started talking about it, and then um, and then hunting season came on us, and we just haven't connected yet. Right. Well, that dude is like the master. <laughs> I mean, that dude is the master at getting permission on private pieces. Uh, and I've kind of, you know, I've spent some time with him, like in his process and like picked his brain. We actually did a whole podcast on it, but there's several things that, um, that he looks for, like, and, and basically to build a short list before he actually goes and knocks on someone's door. And what it is like, so he'll get on Onyx and obviously he'll pick a pick a piece that has some type of interest or looks promising as far as deer habitat like that obviously that's number 1 right so he compiles that list makes um he makes a list of the owner's name address and the parcel size so from there once he has that list built he will then go through and reference those parcels to Facebook accounts. So he will actually go in and like do a little bit of t- detective work and look their names up and say, and like John Smith owns 200 acres. Well, if he knows, if he goes to that Facebook account or social media account, whatever, and there's a bunch of hunting pictures on there and the guy's like super into hunting, Jesse takes that and he cr- scratches that right off the list. Like he's not gonna, and, and I, and I, I commend him cause I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do, do this either. I wouldn't go knock on someone's door and waste my time or their time if they're a serious hunter. Yep. Like if they have a piece that they own and they're paying property tax on and maybe that's the whole reason they bought that piece, you know, I'm not going to go and waste their time or my time because the chances of, of them letting you on a piece if they're serious hunters, it's next to zero. It's like in today's age, like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so he shortens that list from that kind of detective homework. And then from there... It's all about knocking on doors. It's about your personal appearance. It's mm-hmm. about being polite. It's about not bothering people. Like, whether you'd like to say it or not, you know, when you get a knock on your door in 2019, <laughs> I know at least this is what I, you know, if someone that comes and knocks on my door, I'm like, why the heck is someone knocking on my door? Like, it's got to be somebody selling something. Like, I don't want to yeah, go answer that. Exactly. Like, if somebody wants to talk to me, they're going to send me a text or call me or, shoot me an email or something you know like no one's gonna knock on my door Mm -hmm. so you have to put yourself in the position of the landowner and what jesse says that he likes to do is basically take that short list and draw a almost a travel route and make like he'll travel you know a few miles away from home and he'll be able to drive by four or five pieces so he basically goes through and drives past that address or that parcel and like not to be a creeper or sound weird, but he he kind of eyeballs it and uh, see what's going on. What kind of house is it? What kind of vehicles they're driving? You know, what's in the driveway? Or is the garage door open? And if when he's driving past, if he doesn't see anyone, if it looks like the house is closed up, well, then he's not going to stop and knock, knock on a door. Mm-hmm. Like his whole thing is he only stops if he sees someone outside, if he sees the garage door up. Um because he doesn't want to, like, be the guy that pulls into, pulls into a piece, and the house is closed up, 
but maybe the neighbor's outside. And well, now all of a sudden you have a strange person that just pulled into a driveway, is knocking on a door, and there's no one home. Like, right. how does the neighbor not know, or the homeowner know, like, you're not not casing that house to break into it, right. like, two weeks later. So there's always, like, this defense mechanism that, uh, you know, private landowners kind of have, or anyone has, any homeowner has, like, when there's a strange person on your property. Uh, that's your home, you know? Yeah. You don't You don't necessarily want a bunch of strange people walking around. So it's almost putting yourself in their shoes and 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 putting your mind in that same thought process as if you own that piece. So that's kind of where he starts. Um, but from there, like once he makes contact with that, uh, with that landowner, it's about being presentable. So you're not wearing camo or, you know, dirty, nasty clothes. Like when you make that, you know, when you make that introduction, when you're, when you're meeting them for the first time, you're dressed like a normal person, like blue jeans, respectable shirt, um, you know, you shake the person's hands, eye to eye contact. You speak clearly. You're not cussing. You don't have chew or dip in your mouth. <laughs> just be, just be a respectable human being and be able to communicate with them. Yeah. And I think it's important to know, like, the first thing out of your mouth should not be, "Hey, my name's Chad Sylvester. Can I have hunting permission?" Right. Now I'm a whitetail hunter. I w- I want to hunt on your piece. Like that should not be the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Right. Make small talk. Figure out, you know, if you see a, a motorcycle in their, you know, in their garage, if the garage door is open or you see a dirt bike or something in there, like, ask them about it. Yep. Like, just make small talk and be a decent human being and make some type of connection there with them before you go in and say, you know, the real reason why I stopped is, you know, I'm a I'm an avid whitetail archery hunter. Um, you know, I'm new to the area. I was doing a little bit of research on the county the auditor's website or looking on Onyx and saw that this was a pretty big track of land and it looked like it was really good whitetail habitat. I don't have a whole lot of pieces to hunt and I was just curious if you allowed people to, um, if you granted people permission to archery hunt, you know, and, you know, if, see where it goes from there, I guess. But yep. that, those are all kind of things that Jesse has done and I've seen him do and I've actually seen it work. Um, so that I've kind of adopted that because personally I've never, I've never up until this year, like I've never really gone through that process. I've luckily had a giant private chunk owned by my grandfather, family farm to hunt. And then I kind of moved right into hunting public. So yep. I've never until this year, I've never really had to knock on doors and it's, it's a weird thing. Like I talked to a lot of people, uh, on podcasts, YouTube videos and all this stuff. But when you like knock on someone's door that you don't know, like, I instantly got nervous. Like, yep. like the worst, the, you know, the worst thing they could say is no, right? Yeah. Like, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So yep. keep that in the back of your mind, also. But uh, you know, you're going to be nervous. That's just, it's just part of it. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. The only thing, the only thing that I, that I've done. So I say I always make the goal for myself every year that I'm going to go, whether or not I get any access or not, I always make the goal that I'm going to go knock on doors and attempt to get some permission in a couple pieces. And every year it's just like I get busy and then I find some reason not to, not to go do it. But the only thing that I would add that, that I've actually done, and I actually got this from John Eberhardt is I actually wrote a, a hunting resume um, that basically just outlines like who I am, like it has where I work, what my job is, what I do for a living, that I'm married, I have a daughter, you know, I live in the, I live in the area. 
like just a little bit about me, like what, you know, what I'm asking for, you know, I'm asking for permission to hunt, you know, to bow hunt whitetails with archery equipment, you know what I mean? Like very specifically what I want to, to, to ask them about. And I basically just, you know, I, I made that so I could have the conversation that you're suggesting, which is, you know, being polite, humble, making some small talk and doing exactly what you said. Hey, you know, did some research, you know, you got a great piece of ground here. I noticed there was a couple draws, you know, off that Eastern side of your property that I thought would look really good for, for some deer hunting. Um, you know, wanted to stop in and see if there was ever an opportunity to maybe hunt your, hunt the property and get some access to be able to hunt back in there. You know, I would even add in if I'm going to run trail cameras, I'd be like, Hey, you know, I know there's a lot of issues with people trespassing and stuff like that. I run trail, you know, trail cameras. So I'm happy to hang some back here and kind of help you monitor to see if anyone's on here illegally and let you know, you know, I'll come through and check them every so often, you know, and then also offer up like, if it's an older person, especially it's like, Hey, you know, I see you have a wood stack out here. You know, I don't mind coming out like a, a you know, a Sunday or two and, you know, maybe splitting some firewood for you or fixing your fence over here or whatever, just something to help them out. And then the reason I have the the resume is like, you know, even if they say no, like, Hey, I appreciate your time. Let me leave this list with you. It has all of my information on it. If you happen to change your mind, you know, feel free to give me a call or shoot me an email or whatever. That way they have some form of contact. It seems like legitimate because you've actually document, you took the time to actually document your thoughts and ideas and it gives them something to take back take with them that way if they do want to get a hold of you if they did change their mind for some reason then they can get a hold of you and the reason they might change their mind is maybe they have two guys that they've already given permission to and they didn't want a third and then say something happens where that guy runs his truck through the guy's yard and ruts it up and that guy's out of there now and he's like let me give that guy a call and then he doesn't know how to get a hold of you so now at least he has something that he can get a hold of you with so that's just yeah. that's just the one thing what I add. I know I know John has said in the past that that's worked really well for him. So just wanted to add that one in. But man, I think uh, man, we've been going strong, dude. Almost uh, almost three hours. I think we're definitely gonna have to cut this one up into a couple pieces. But before uh, before I let you get going, man, why don't you uh, let people out there know where they can find out more about you, find out more about Exodus Outdoor Gear, and all your kick-ass trail cameras. Yeah, um, you can find me on. Facebook personally for personally on Facebook and Instagram at uh, Chad Sylvester or Sylvester underscore Chad um, something like that but yeah company stuff exodusoutdoorgear.com exodus trail cameras uh, on all social channels Facebook Instagram YouTube uh, and then trail cam radio uh, our own our own podcast so yeah that's it awesome man well buddy thank you for jumping on here this was a good time man because we haven't had a chance to to catch up like this and do a podcast since i think last uh last uh show season at, at harrisburg and then uh so i think we'll be seeing each other soon at that show here coming up if not before if i don't if i don't talk to you before christmas i know that's like uh the date that we're recording this we're like a little over a week out week and a half out from christmas if i don't uh I'm sure I'll talk to you before then, but if something weird happens that I don't, uh, you have a, a Merry Christmas. I hope your family uh, enjoys the holiday and uh, be safe. And I hope you get a little little time off and a little relaxation. You deserve it. Uh, you too, brother. All right, folks, that's a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you do those two things for us. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. 
And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.